the first is next Sunday after this second service, we're having our annual congregational meeting. Uh, we're not a congregational church, so we don't really vote on anything, but if you want some updates, that's your place. Um, we'll talk about the budget for this coming year. Uh, we have, the Lord blessed us with a significant amount of, I think significant, a good amount of overage last year. We brought in more than we thought. We were able to give that, all that away. Um, that's been our policy for the last few years. Anything comes in extra, we give it all away. We'll tell you about that. Also some updates on some coming ministries in this new year. Second announcement down there, the women's retreat, which is coming up. Please, women, read that, respond to that appropriately, and uh, that'll be a great time. All right, on the inside, it says redemptive reversal. I am running the risk of alienating some of you right now because I'm going to begin two weeks in a row with an illustration from football. I'm sorry. I was watching the... Uh, the 49ers and Packers game last night for the first half. I went to bed at halftime. Uh, I don't know if he's a great quarterback, but here's my observation about Jimmy Garoppolo, the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers. That dude is a handsome man. I mean, he is, uh, there are standards of attractiveness across cultures and through ages. Jimmy Garoppolo ticks every box, I'm certain. And I'm just telling you, he's a handsome guy. Uh, anybody? Okay, right. So, yeah, right. So Taylor says yes, right. So um, it's just it's the thing, right? Um, I don't know if he's a great quarterback. He probably gets a he probably gets more credit than he should because he's handsome. Um, happens in this world, I'm told. Uh, maybe think this question. It's a question for you, and I want you to answer it to yourself, but not out loud. So it may sound like an odd question, but here it is. In his incarnation. When Jesus took on flesh as a man, was he a handsome man? Did he tick all the boxes of standards of beauty that are transcultural? Was Jesus a handsome man? Uh, there is an answer to that question. The answer to that question is no, he was not a handsome man, and that's very important. And this passage hints at why that was. And why that's good news for you and me, too. And it has nothing to do with our handsomeness or beauty. It has everything to do with Jesus. One of the uh, privileges I've had over the last 20 years, almost, living in our neighborhood, is I've uh, gotten to do a lot of funerals for families in the neighborhood. Not families who are part of New City, but basically, if it's, if it's a Catholic family, they'll you know, utilize the, the local parish. But if it's a non-Catholic family... I'm often asked to do the, the funeral because I'm the non-Catholic preacher <laughs> around. And so, and I, it is a privilege because it, it is a time where you have access to a family to encourage them. Um, people are attentive, had some really great conversations about the Lord with uh, families and have been able to give general comfort. And no matter who the family is, I always ask, hey, I'd like, you know, for you guys to consider saying this, saying something at the funeral. And I want you to, you know, Tell a good story, right? Tell something that you remember about this person. What did they say or do that really opened up an avenue for you into their life that was stunning? And these great stories come up, and I always have two thoughts. One is, um, I wonder if the person who's deceased knew what he or she said or did was so important to you. And number two, did you tell them? <laughs> did you tell them? So 
this is not a sermon on that, but uh, it's good to express our appreciation to people because sometimes what we're saying and doing has impact we do not know at the time. That is actually what's happening in the passage that we're looking at this morning in the life of Jacob. Jacob. Uh, we looked at Jacob last week, if you remember, where he wrestled with God. And God brought a measure of humility into his life by uh, bringing a, uh, showing him his weakness, and that was good for Jacob. Well, this is many years later. You may know the story, right? It goes on. Jacob has several children. They settle the youngest of whom at the time is Joseph. Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, favorite child. But he's got 11 uh, older brothers and sisters who don't like the fact that Joseph is the favorite. And also, if you read the story, Joseph... Not going to lie, kind of a jerk. Now he has these dreams about how the, the stars will bow down to him and the stars of the rest of his family. He has a vision that one day the stars will bow down to him, and then he tells them that he had this dream. I don't know, he's, he wasn't required to tell them they had a dream, but he did. And so uh, he was the annoying younger brother, so much so, and the favorite of the father, that the brothers, this is a dysfunctional family, they decided to try to kill him. One of the sons comes to his senses before they kill him and says, instead, let's just sell him into slavery and pretend he's dead. So that somehow was a better idea. They sold Joseph into slavery, went back to dad and said, bad news, uh, Joseph got killed by a wild animal. So there's weeping and lamenting and grieving. Joseph is sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt uh, as a household servant to Potiphar. Potiphar was a... Um, a high-ranking government official. Joseph did well in his house, but Potiphar's wife took a liking to Joseph. Maybe he was a little more, more like Jimmy Garoppolo than most of us here, you know, a very handsome guy, and she, uh, he did not reciprocate her interests and her advances, so she got mad and accused him of a crime he did not commit, but he got thrown in jail for the crime he didn't commit anyway and was there for several years. Like, it says, Joseph goes to jail, there's a period, the next sentence begins in the next act, but it's like a dozen years, like his life, a lot of years in jail. But when he's in jail, he, he, there's two guys that have dreams that they want interpreted, and Joseph's able to interpret both of these dreams. One of them is the, the guy who's going to lose his life, and he does. One of them, the guy's going to be released in a few days, and he is. And the man who's released in a few days ends up in the employment of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh... Uh, sometime later, has this dream that's tormenting him, and he needs it interpreted, and he can't find anybody to interpret it to his satisfaction. And the man who got released from prison says, I remember this guy in prison named Joseph, who interprets dreams with specific accuracy. Pharaoh sends for Joseph. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream to mean that for seven years, you will have plenty. Your harvest will be plentiful. It'll be years of fatness in the land. And then after that, starting the eighth year, there'll be seven years of famine, so you better prepare. Joseph belie or Pharaoh believed Joseph, and so put Joseph administratively in charge of the granaries, and he began to accumulate grain so that on the eighth year, when the famine hit, the drought hit, and the famine hit, they had grain stored up. And they had to ration it, but they lived for seven years. Joseph, at, at that point, because it, it was shown that he had such prophetic insight, was raised to second in command to Egypt, so sort of Pharaoh's right-hand man. Uh, but the, the famine wasn't just in, in Egypt. It was in the surrounding ancient Near East. And people from other lands become, began to come to Egypt to buy grain. There was a famine in Canaan also where Jacob and his other sons lived. 
And so eventually they had no food, and Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to buy grain. And so they come before Joseph to buy grain, and they don't recognize it's Joseph. They don't think he's, they don't even know if he's alive anymore. They sold him into slavery years ago. And I mean, it's interesting. This, it's a very dysfunctional family, but there's this reunion, right? And uh, you can read all of that on your own, and I encourage you to do so. Eventually, Joseph sends for all his brothers and his father to come and live with them in Egypt. And he does. Jacob and all the, the sons come and live with Joseph in Egypt in some luxury. And that's where we are today. We're not looking at the life of Joseph, really, but the life of Jacob one more time. In the New Testament, years after this, in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the 11th chapter, there's what we call sort of tongue-in-cheek the hall of fame, the hall of faith, where uh, for this one chapter in Hebrews, it talks about faith, and it starts enumerating the people in history through whom God's promises came and kind of what they were known for, some of the outstanding things that they did by faith. And so I put this in your insert, Hebrews 11. Now by now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, Abel did this. By faith, Noah did this. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Isaac did this. And then it's going to talk about Jacob. And you say, okay, now what is it that they're going to talk about Jacob? This one thing that he does that is iconic of his existence as a patriarch. I mean, he has got great stories, right? He wrestled with God. God taught him humility. Right? He had the vision of the stairway to heaven. This was back in Genesis 28, stairway to heaven. Familiar with this, right? Um, Led Zeppelin, yes. But uh, also, before that, long before that, Bethel, the place of God. He saw the, Joseph, nope, Jacob had this vision of the stairway to the temple. It was amazing. And he had this great, you know, this great love story with Rachel and Leah and deception, and you could make a movie about it, but none of those things are talked about. Here's what... Hebrews 11 says, Hebrews 11, verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff, period, next person. Jacob did something in faith and in hope that was in alignment, with the, in alignment with the promises of God so that they were talking about it 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about it 4,000 years later. But it's something when we read our Bible, if we're kind of reading through Genesis, often we just kind of skip right past 48. Like, oh, that's kind of complicated. Let's move on to the next, you know, high-impact scene. And if you're reading a children's storybook Bible to your kids, usually it just jumps right over this, this narrative. And yet in the New Testament, it's the enduring, iconic picture of Jacob because he does something that reveals the way God acts in history. Jacob does something that reveals the nature of God, the character of God, and how he acts redemptively in history, all through history, and in his people today, and in my life, and yours, and ours together. And I put it in red so you wouldn't miss it. It is this, God, Jacob shows us that God redeems through humility, availability, and faithfulness in the midst of a world that prizes power, strength, and promotion. The pathway of redemption of God in history and in your life and mine is through humility, availability, and faithfulness. In the world we live in now, 
does and always has prized the opposite of that. Power, strength, self-promotion, right? Every guy wants to look like Jimmy Garoppolo, right? The very least. So, unfortunately, sometimes that love of power and strength and promotion often works its way into the people of God and in the church. And it's really, it's, that's the, the air we breathe and the water we swim in. It's very hard for that not to be, you know, influencing us. Genesis 48, verse 1. After this, after all these things, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So Jacob is old, and Joseph's word came to him. In the last, it could be any moment now. He's, go, he's getting close to dying. So Joseph took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Joseph was in Egypt, he married an Egyptian woman named Asenath, and he had two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. Uh, verse 2, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, if you remember, that's another name for Jacob. He got renamed by God after God beat him in a wrestling match. Uh, then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, which is also Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So Jacob recounts God's faithfulness to him. Down in verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel, the eyes of Jacob, were dim with age so that he could not see. So, you know, the, his grandchildren come in. He's like, who are these? So we don't know. Like, is this a rhetorical question? Like, sometimes you joke with a young person who's grown a lot since you seem like, I don't even recognize you. Who are you? I don't know if he's doing that. Maybe that, that family is still so dysfunctional that he doesn't have any contact with the grandchildren. Or maybe he just can't see so much. He's like, who are those people, right? Um, but he says, bring them here when he finds out who they are. I want to bless them. They're your children, Joseph, and you're mine. They are heirs of the covenant promise as well. I want to bless them. I want to declare that they, the covenant promise over them. It's my, and, and in that culture, that, that patriarchal blessing was sort of a descriptive and predictive. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a coveted thing. Now, that kind of falls on deaf ears in 2022. I get that, but we just have to understand it was a highly coveted reality in that culture. Uh, so, Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. So probably what, you've probably seen pictures of these low, ancient Near Eastern couches. Those, that same type of couch was in existence for millennium. So probably Jacob was reclining on that, used his staff to kind of like, get himself up and maybe was set up and the boys came to him. We don't know how, quite how old those boys were, maybe 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, somewhere in that range. And uh, they, they probably actually probably get down to his knees, like fall on his knees, and he probably covers them and just gugs them and kisses them. Very affectionate. Verse 11, and Israel said to Joseph, you know, I never expected to see your face again. I was told you were dead. I grieved your loss for years. I never expected to see your face. And behold, 
God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed down himself with his face to the earth. So probably what happened is that Joseph's, the kids are on Grandpa's knees, just kind of leaning over his knees, and he's like, boys, step aside. And Joseph himself gets down and kind of kneels at his father's knees as dad is sitting on this couch. That's probably what happens. So Joseph honors his dad, Jacob, by bowing before him. Again, maybe not what we would do in this culture, you know, um, but kids, my son's not even in here this term. But, you know, just in case, it's okay. Um, Verse 13, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Now, anytime you're reading the Bible or listening to a Bible story, and it starts slowing down like this and giving the excruciating, uh, like almost seemingly unnecessary detail, the wise listener says, hmm, I wonder if it's telling us something here. And indeed it is. Um, You know, maybe we should pay attention. Why is this? Okay. Manasseh is the oldest. He's the firstborn. Ephraim is the secondborn, the youngest. In that culture... The firstborn was the place of honor. It was the place of power. It was the place of primacy of inheritance. The firstborn was more important. I'm not saying that's the way it ought to be. It's just the way this culture was. So now, personally, I'm a firstborn, so I kind of like this. However, uh, we don't live that way anymore. It's more equitable now. I think that's probably a good thing. Uh, But in that culture... The firstborn would have been older, bigger, stronger, more respected. And we just have to understand that's how that was in order to understand what happens next, okay? So Manasseh was the firstborn. He's the natural one to receive the prominent blessing. Another thing to understand, the right hand in that culture was the the blessing of the right hand was also primary. And this works its way into history in many ways. Like we have the phrase, I actually already said it, Joseph was Pharaoh's right-hand man. It just works its way in. Uh, In Scripture, we have a phrase, God of my right hand, or God has bared his right arm. And that's simply because most people, like 90%, are are right-handed. It's not a moral judgment on lefties. It's just the way it is, right? And so that's naturally, that's the side of strength. And a person, 90% of people generally are right-handed. And we just need to know that in order to understand what happens next. So what we would expect, what the world would expect, what Joseph expected was for Manasseh, the firstborn, the prominent, the stellar one, the big one, the respected one, the one, the, the noble one, to receive the right hand. And so Joseph puts Manasseh in front of Jacob's right hand and the younger one, Ephraim, in front of Jacob's left hand. So it's easy for the old guy. And here's what Jacob then does. They're standing right beside each other, verse 14. And Israel, Jacob, stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. 
for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and, he let, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So you, you might say, well, he just crossed his hands. But remember, Hebrews says this is the thing he's now remembered for in all of redemptive history doing this one act. So two things are going on here with Jacob. One, remember Jacob's life, he's the stubborn one. He's always trying to put his finger on the scales of his life to make it go like he thinks it should go. Yeah, maybe God made promises, but I'm going to make sure they turn out like I want them to. And it is through this uh, wrestling with God that he learns some humility in middle age. That's years before this, but now that humility has begun to sink deeply into his old bones. And so he says here, right, it's not my self-leadership that has guided me all these years. Nope. God, who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. A lot of scholars think Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads, you know, that one, written by David hundreds of years later, is actually inspired by this utterance of Jacob right here. God, who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, has led me. It wasn't my prowess that rescued me and my power that rescued me from all these tangled situations. He says, verse 16, the angel, probably the angel of the Lord, who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. What Jacob's seeing here is that all the time he's recognizing this as an old man. I was not living by my power but by the promise of God, the promise God made to my grandfather and my father and he makes to me, and now, boys, he makes to you. Now, this isn't the main point of this passage, but I am struck at this, is that I, and I hope for you, but I want to be that kind of person as I age. The world does not appreciate and prize people as they age past a certain age in our culture. I don't know if you've noticed. All of us, if we live long enough, will live to the point where we are despised and discarded by this world. At that point, and before that point, I want to be able to say from the heart more and more every year, actually, I live by the promise of the gospel and by the presence of the God who shepherds me all the days of my life. And the world can discard me and despise me, but it doesn't matter because I'm not discarded and I'm not despised. I'm held. God makes promises of the gospel to me, and he's present with me. Um, I want, as I move into the next chapter and the chapter after that, by God's grace, if many decades, I want to move more into that. Let that wisdom like sink into my old bones too, and for you. But the obvious high point of this passage is not that. It is when Jacob blesses the boys and crosses his hands. So the younger receives the chief blessing, right? The smaller one, the weaker one, the less anticipated one, the less expected one, not, not the one the world would put forward, not the one that social custom would put forward, and not the one, literally not even the one his own dad put forward, right? He's like, here's the good one, and here's the second one. <laughs> he literally did that, right? Um, and in this one gesture of crossing his arms, 
Jacob pictures nearly all of the activity of God in redemptive history and in my life and yours. Showing that he actually works through the weakness and humility and availability and faithfulness in a world that prizes the opposite. And think about, think about the story, the story we're in to this point. He's always done this, right? We saw it a couple weeks ago when God begins to call a people to himself. Does he choose? I mean, he's going to make promises to, to a, a couple that's going to bear children and do all these great things. Obviously, he's going to choose a young, strong couple, right, in their prime. No, he chooses an old man named Abraham and an old woman named Sarah. Not what the world would think. And then, years later, when he's going to give them a child, what's the natural means of him giving a child? Well, the world might say, well, not, your, not the old woman, Sarah, maybe Abraham, your young, fertile maid named Hagar. The world would say that. Sarah said that. Abraham said that. The Lord did not say that. The Lord said, Sarah, Sarah. They, she has a baby named Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, as we see, is kind of deceiving and whiny and unpleasant. Esau is a guy, the Scripture says, uh, that, that Isaac loved and was strong. So who is God obviously going to work through? The strong and loved one? No, the weak, whiny one. That's the one. And then he goes, because his strong brother doesn't like him, he's going to kill him. He goes and flees, and uh, he has this, you know, he has this wife that he wants, Rebecca, and she's beautiful, and he loves her, and he gets tricked into marrying the, the homely, unwanted daughter named Leah first. Again, I'm not saying this is the, should happen. I'm just saying this is what happened. So you got the, the homely, unwanted one and the beautiful, wanted one. Who's God not actually going to work through? The world would say the, the beautiful one, of course. Does, does not God only work through beautiful people? Scripture says no. Leah. Leah has a child named Judah. And if you trace the line of Jesus, it goes through Judah, not one of Rachel's kids. Joseph himself, he's sold by his brothers into slavery. That's a low point, except then he gets accused of a crime he didn't commit and gets thrown in prison. That's an even lower point. And God raises him up from weakness. And then we'll see this in a, you know, maybe next week, in a couple weeks perhaps. Moses, God raises up Moses. Yes, he's royalty, but he's afraid to speak in front of people because he has a speech impediment. In Deuteronomy 7, God tells Israel, you know, I didn't rescue you because you were strong. I rescued you because you were weak and you needed rescue. Think of some of the judges, the early judges. Deborah, in that culture, low power. She was a woman. Gideon, who we didn't think of as a hero, but the Scripture points out he's a coward. Ehud is a judge who is left-handed almost certainly because he's got a maimed right arm. David, we think of him as a hero now, but remember he was the least and the smallest and the least noticed of Jesse's sons. Josiah, possibly the greatest king, that the best, highest integrity king that reigned in the history of Israel, was eight years old when he came to the throne. And when Jesus comes into the world, into Israel, it is not at the height of Israel's power. It is at the, the its low point, and the empire of Rome has its boot on Israel's neck. God doesn't work through the strong. He works through the weak. The Think about Mary and Joseph, right? Common working class people. The 12 disciples are a mix of blue-collar workers and small business owners. Jesus, not royalty, 
born in relative poverty. And by the way, Scripture in Isaiah 53 says he had no stately form or majesty that we would be drawn to him. He was not handsome. He was not stellar. He didn't have this magnetic aura about him. He didn't have this cool energy everybody's attracted to. He was a regular person who took on flesh and became normal. And here's what he says. I didn't come to, even though I'm king of kings and lord of lords, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And if you want to follow me, you serve. You become a servant of all. The first will be last. And if you want to be great, you become a servant of all. Why is that? It's not what we would expect. It's because God redeems through humility, faithfulness, and availability in a world that prizes the opposite of that. He did then, he did through Jesus, and he does today. Last week, I'm sorry, I'm going to do it again. Last week, another football illustration, I gave this illustration that uh, the Colts lost the playoff game, everybody's calling for the firing of the, the quarterback and the coach and linemen and whatever. Because there is a truth there that with the Colts or a sports team or a business or whatever, the success of the enterprise is dependent on the quality of the key people the quarterback and the coach and the defensive lineman and whatever. Maybe God's inclination to work in this world through weakness is so he can highlight this single fact. The success of his enterprise is not dependent on the quality of the key people, even if we are those key people, but on the one who makes the promise and promises to bring it to bow and has marched it through every generation and every century from this point up to Jesus and through Jesus into this room. He works through weakness and humility. He does not need our strength. He needs our humility. He needs our availability. And it's not because God needs some recognition that he's doing it, not us. I think we need that. The pressure is off, right? It's not, it's not on us. This whole thing moves ahead by grace, not by stellar, strong, powerful people who can self-promote themselves into, into popularity. People who recognize that we are creatures, not creators. That we are dependent, not independent. I want to just read one selection. I have a book recommendation here. It's called No Little People. It's an old book, fantastic, I think, by Francis Schaeffer, who is this weird little old theologian man. A lot of people don't know, but if you read his stuff, it's so really good. Um, Schaeffer writes this. This is from last century, but... He writes, the central problem of our age is not, he's writing from a conservative sort of Presbyterian world, right? The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and all the monolithic consensus which surrounds us. We can add a few more isms today. All these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work and the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. That is so humbling and so convicting to me. Um, we read this chapter as a session, as an elder team, and that God has, is calling us to pray. Think about what prayer is. It is that place where we actually can do nothing. We do nothing except say, Lord, you do everything, please. That's the, that's the place where God meets us in weakness, and it's probably why prayer is so hard for Americans. 
I mean, we just need a better daytimer system, a better, you know, information processing, better CRM, whatever. We need something better, and then we'll do it. A better strategy, a little more power, a better diet, different kind of workout, different resolution, whatever. And all, all through Scripture, God is saying in different ways, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Would you just be, you can be too strong to be used by me, but you can't be too weak. Um, and if we think about it, right, so if I were to ask you to tell me the place in the New Testament, either in the teachings of Jesus or the Apostle Paul or Peter or John, the New Testament, where God calls his people and says, go change the world, you would be looking for a very long time. Never does that. You can get a preacher to say that to you. You can get Christian colleges to say that to you. Come, we'll train you to change the world. The Scripture never says that. It says stuff like this. Make it your ambition to live quiet and godly lives. Full of love, joy, justice, peace. Love the people in front of you. Love the people in your neighborhood. Love the people in your city. Just do the stuff. Just do it. So for the Christian, right, the first move is not to achieve something. It's simply to receive We receive the promise of the gospel, mercy, grace, love. It means the first move is, and I'm I'm saying this to you as one who struggles here, right? The first move is not strategy, it's prayer. So I don't know what you got going on in your life. I know your inclination as good Americans is to strategize through it quickly. Can I plead with you as you need to remind me, probably, you know, after this sermon, Don't do that first. Don't say, here's what I can do. Say, Lord, you need to do everything. Make that your first move. And then your second move can be praying about it some more. And maybe your third move as well. Right? Let's do that for a week, two weeks, a month. Then let's see if the path in front of us isn't more clear. This means that our weaknesses and vulnerabilities are not necessarily liabilities. If God moves through weakness, it means those are avenues through which Jesus meets us with his grace if we are willing to meet uh, him in those avenues or through those avenues. I mean, yes, we're talking about areas of failure and disappointment and sin. Jesus has come to serve us in those. You see, when when we're strong, we're essentially saying, I don't need Jesus right here in my life. I don't need him. And if we, are, if we feel like we have to be strong all the time, we're essentially saying, thanks, Jesus, I don't need you. He comes to meet us in our weakness and our frailty, our brokenness, our sin. That's why confession of sin is so important in our church community. Uh, and so if this is true, I think it radically reshapes ourself before God. We don't have to, there's no pretending necessary. Like if, you're, if we're faking strong, we're simply opting out of Jesus' grace. Let's not do that. Um, Think about how this functions in Christian community, too. We don't have to hide weakness, sin, struggle, discouragement, despair. We don't have to hide that. And when we see that in somebody else, we don't have to recoil from that or attack it and fix it. Why? (laughs) Why don't we have to fix somebody's weakness and brokenness? (laughs) That's the place Jesus meets us. We don't want to teach people and encourage people to exempt themselves from the very place that Jesus meets us with his grace. So this is good, it is freeing, and completely 
easy to forget. If there's anybody who would have embraced Jacob crossing his hands, it would be Joseph. Why? Well, first of all, Joseph was the youngest. Joseph had been sold into slavery. Joseph had been put in prison for years and then lifted up. It's like, whoa, God works, brings me out of these like, terrible situations and weakness where I had no power and he lifts me up. It's amazing. But check out what Joseph does. Verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Joseph thinks his father is having a senior moment. It's like, no, Dad, you're doing it wrong. So, what is, how does Jacob respond? In our house, it would be, step off, young, and that's what we would say. That's what we've said for you. Step off. Uh, verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also... Manasseh will become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. It's not that I'm not going to bless Manasseh. I'm just going to bless Ephraim more. Like the Lord would communicate to us, it's not that I'm not going to work through people in their strength. I'm just going to work through you and your weakness more. And if you happen to be some of those people that have high skill and a lot of strength, can I encourage you to take it and submit it in humility before the Lord and treat it as a stewardship, not something that you own by rights, but something that's been gifted to you by God for the purpose of serving others. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh, Then Israel 21, verse 21, said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. This whole thing is bookended in verse 4 and in verse 21 with reminder of the promise of God. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bring you back to the land of your fathers. This whole thing is bookended by God's intention to bring redemption to this earth and to your life, to this community. And he does it through our weakness, but not just our weakness. Why is this bookended by the promises of God? Because there was another firstborn son who did not receive the blessing so that those who were not firstborn could receive the firstborn blessing. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus. He steps aside. He's he's passed over. In fact, he receives the curse of sin that we may receive the blessing of the firstborn son. The hands were crossed again for our benefit. And Jesus redeems in ways that are unexpected. We would not expect that he wins through losing, but he does. We would not expect that he brings life through death, but he does. And he does so that the actual weaknesses and sin and frailty in our life are now 
only for us if we, we will meet him there, a pathway of grace into our life. One of the ways this gets pressed on our soul every week, and I'm going to ask Taylor to come and lead us here in a second, is through the communion table. This picture that Jesus won you by losing and brought life to us by death. Let's pray, and then we'll come to the table. Jesus, we are loved by you. Our eyes are dim to how much that really is. Our hearts are sometimes callous to the true extent of your passion and your fighting for us and your grace toward us and your compassion for us. So would you just expand our ability to comprehend you in all that you are for your people? In Jesus' name. Thank you, Roger. Thank you for your encouragement, exhortation, preaching the gospel to us. I don't know about you, but I was, I was really struck uh, in the reminder of when, when Roger was doing the survey of all of the biblical characters who were like surprises from Abraham through Moses through David and all of those examples, really just honing home Roger's main point that, that God redeems through humility, availability, and faithfulness. But it's not just those examples that were encouraging to me. It's that God chose to work through those men and women, through humility, availability, and faithfulness, surprising people, because that's how he himself is. In Christ, we see God redeeming through humility, availability, and faithfulness. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clenched, but emptied himself by becoming a man, a servant. That's humility. Jesus is also available. He tells us that he was and is gentle and lowly in heart and invites all those who are weary and tired to come to him. He's available, not just in the pages of Scripture, but now, and he's faithful. Thinking about Hebrews chapter 12, that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All the promises of God find their yes in him now. We get to look to Jesus, who is humble, available, and faithful. This Jesus is the one who we are going to remember now as we go to the table. We call it the Lord's table or communion, a time of bread and wine.